Good morning. Um, we're going to be on page 1029. It's Revelations 2, starting with verse 12. That's page number 1029. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thanks, Mark, for reading that text. And it's good to have Carol back on the music team. It's really good. So if you have your Bibles there, go ahead and go back, or if, you, if you're already open to where that text was, uh, go ahead and stay there, because that's going to be uh, where we're going to be for this morning here. All right. So we're going through the seven churches, seven letters uh, here that Jesus wrote, John records. John uh, was uh, on the island of Patmos, remember? Uh, he was in exile. Uh, he was, uh, you know, imprisoned basically there, hard labor, a sentence to hard labor on this isle uh, for his faith in Christ. Uh, we know Church Tristan teaches us. And so uh, he's, he's getting this vision we saw in chapter one of all these different letters and things like this that Jesus is saying, hey, this is what I want uh, these churches to know. Uh, they were written very specifically to these churches, uh, so there's some, some details there that are very specific to it, but we also know that they were written for uh, all of us here, because at the end of every letter it says, he was near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and so he's just basically saying, these are lessons for everybody here. Um, let me just give you one quick reminder about interpreting the scriptures here in, in that before we dive into some of the background. Um, you know, while, as I said, these, these, while these were written for us, they were not written to us. And so because of that, sometimes references in some of these passages, they may, they're, they're a little bit more obscure to us, but they would have been crystal clear to the original audience. So this text is a, is a great example of that. Uh, so like the backstory or even the identity of Antipas that is mentioned in here, we don't know anything about this guy. We don't know anything about his background. We don't know the backstory. We don't know anything about the events of it. All we know is that he apparently was a martyr. He was killed for his faith in Christ. But the Church of Pergamon would have known exactly who he was in the backstory. Uh, even the, who the Nicolaitans are. Uh, we talked about them a couple weeks ago um, in, the, in the church at Ephesus. And we don't really know much about what they taught. We just know that they were false teachers and that they were causing problems in, in the churches there. Uh, at the end here, uh, he says, the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna. 
I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. And, you know, scholarship is incredibly divided on what this could mean. And, and at the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell you how I think we can apply that. But uh, all the, the, you know, the, we know the general point about these type of things, but the, but the specifics are not very clear. Now, that doesn't uh, mean that the Word of God is less important or doesn't mean that it's less helpful to us uh, in any means, because while it was written to these specific churches and they had great clarity about all these details, it was written for us in the sense that we can understand the general principles and the general teaching that is for not just that church, but for all churches. So I, I just mentioned that because as you're reading your Bibles, as you're going through that, just understand that sometimes as you see certain things, uh, you think, well, man, what's the specific reference there? Well, we, we may not actually know all the nuances of that, but we know enough of it that, for that we could have a, a good understanding of what the, the, the teaching and the principle is is for us there. Um, let, me, let me give you a little bit of background. Remember, this is uh, to give you kind of a context of where these churches are at. You got, you know, Italy over here um, and uh, the, the island of Patmos. Let me zoom in just a little bit here. So now this is the island that uh, John is finding himself on here. And then we've gone to Ephesus, Smyrna, and now we're up here in Pergamon. This really was following a postal route in the Roman uh, Empire. And so we're going to take these churches in order because that's how they go. And so this would have been just a, a natural way for people to follow roads as they were delivering these letters here. A little bit about Pergamon. It was the capital city in Asia Minor. One of the things that it was most known for in the ancient world was it had this incredible library. It had a library of about 200,000 volumes. It was the second largest library of the ancient world, second only to Alexandria. Uh, and there's some interesting backstory about that, about how that there was an embargo and they couldn't use the normal papyrus. And so they actually came up with uh, the animal parchments and things like that to actually write on. And so they, they pioneered what the writing medium would be for the next, you know, uh, several hundred years uh, just because they were overcoming this embargo. But they wanted to have this library. So they had 200,000 handwritten uh, volumes uh, in this library. We don't really know when the church was started, although we can make a really good guess on it. It was most likely during the same time when Paul started the church in Ephesus. And you would read about that in Acts chapter 19. Um, in Acts chapter 19 and in verse 10, it says that Paul stayed there for two years. He stayed in Ephesus for two years. And it says this, so that all the residents of Asia, that's talking about this, this uh, Roman province of Asia. So Ephesus is down here. He was there for two years ministering. And that's not that long of a, a journey there. So if he spent two years there, it says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. So if you're reading Acts 19 and you come across that verse, most likely that's when this church of Pergamon was started. We don't know 100% for sure on that, but as we're piecing everything together, um, that's what it was probably when the church was started. From Jesus's note here, we do get the sense though and we're going to talk more in detail about this in a second here. But we get the sense that it was actually very difficult to be a Christian in Pergamum. Uh, because of being in the capital city, and we're going to talk about maybe some of the reasons why it was extra difficult there uh, in a minute there. But you just need to know right now in the beginning is that it was difficult to be a Christian in Pergamum. So if, if I was going to give you kind of a thesis sentence for the sermon today, it would be this. Christians living in difficult places must seize their unique opportunities 
uh, or unique opportunity to be faithful witnesses while resisting the powerful pull of culture. And I think we see this really come out in this letter to the Church of Pergamum. So I'll say it again. Christians living in difficult places must seize their unique opportunity to be faithful witnesses while resisting the powerful pull of culture. That's going to give you a frame of where we're going to go. But before we start on the journey, let me just pray and ask God's blessing, okay? Father, I, I want to pause now, and anytime we open your word and anytime we begin to talk about it, uh, we want to stop and say, this is your word. We respect it. We only want to teach in a way uh, that is accurate to the text here, and I want to communicate in a way that is helpful to the people who are listening, either in person or online, uh, but God, uh, I know that I can't do that without your Spirit's enablement. I, I, I know that I can't do that without your help, and so that's what we're asking for right now, and, I, and, and people who are listening, whether here or online, uh, we need to be free from distraction, and there's so many things that, are, that really want to capture our thoughts and, and our attention right now, and so God, I, I pray that we be able just to set those things aside just for a few minutes and just look at the Word and, and see what you have for us here, and so I pray that I'd communicate in a way that it's helpful. I pray that it would be a time well spent for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to break this up into three different parts here. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about living in difficult places here, because Pergamum seems to be a difficult place. But before I talk about Pergamum in, uh, in specifically, first of all, the idea of difficult is pretty relative, right? I mean, it, there's, there's some relativity to whether you would consider a place difficult to live in or someone's life difficulty. You know, you, you may be going through a difficulty in your life, and then you see what someone else is going through, and you think, well, I guess mine's not that difficult, you know, compared to what they're going through. Or, you know, the other side is, you hear someone complaining about what they're going through, and then you're going, you know, <laughs> it's probably, it's not as big as you think it is, right? You know, we have that because difficulty is relative. But at the same time, though, it, you know, there's, there's, it's not always wise to do the comparison thing because whatever we're going through, it is difficult for us. And whether it's smaller or greater to someone else, on some level is really uh, insignificant. It, it really doesn't have anything to do with it because it still is a difficult thing for the thing, for or the situation that you find yourself in. So I wanted to say that first on the onset, when I talk about living in difficult places, I recognize that there's some relativity here. You know, what we consider difficult here, other Christians in other parts of the world would say, really, that's not that big of a deal. And what other places they would say that's really difficult and certain issues that they're dealing with in their churches we would say that's not a big deal at all. It's, it's always been interesting to me when I go to different countries and I meet with Christians and I find out what the problems in the churches are. Because every church has them, right? Okay, sometimes we romanticize these churches in other countries and say, oh, you know, they'll walk three hours to get to church and everything. And that is, and we need to be instructed by that, instructed by that right? You, we need to learn from that commitment. We need to learn from that. But you, you talk to the pastors, you talk to the people in church, let me tell you, they still have their own issues and difficulties that they're working through as well. And then if I were to bring them back to here, you would say, what's the big deal, right? And when I talk about some of the difficulties that we have here in the States, people in other countries, they're going, what, what is the big deal? Like, you know, it, it would be amazing to me, to, to a lot of people, it's like, well, you didn't come to church because of that or what? What, what is the reason for that? So all I'm saying is that difficulty is relative in some ways, and across the world, 
people have it uh, uh, different than we do. And sometimes I would say, you know, more difficult in certain ways. Uh, I keep this picture in my office. If you go into my office, uh, there's the conference table there and there's the bookshelves right there. Above that is that picture right there. And I keep that in my office because I, I, I study where I study during the week. I, I don't study at my computer. I study at my conference table. I'm away from my computer and all that. So I just got my books, my paper, my pen, and, and I'm just writing there. And I keep that right there so that when I look up, I see this picture often. I look at this picture probably a hundred times a week, okay? Because I want it to be a reminder to me, right? I want it to be a reminder, because let me tell you what's going on in this picture, and I've shown this to you before. Uh, this is a group of people, this is in a, a Slavic country several years ago under communist rule, that were gathering as churches was illegal, they could not do it, and they would be persecuted for it. And so what I love about this is that these are people who they said, they know, they said, no, Jesus says we as Christians gather together, we worship Jesus together. And so they go out, and they, they, they go out into the woods, and, and it's snowy, right? Okay, it's snowy. It's, you know it's cold there, right? And so here they've gathered, and here's this, this pastor here, right here, and, and he's preaching. I love that they brought this little table with them uh, for the Lord's Supper. They're saying, you know, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. We're going to meet in the woods, in the snow, okay? And we're going we're gonna to have a worship service because we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. I love the fact that, that they prioritize this so much, and I look at this and I say, you know, if it's a little warm in the auditorium sometimes, or, you know, if it's too cold, or, or you know, I, 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 preaching in this room has always been a challenge to me because it's like this shoot here, and I feel like I never look at people in the front rows because I'm always trying to make sure I got everyone in the back row, okay, you know, so Jane's in the back row. I'm looking at her the entire service here, you know, okay, <laughs> because, you know, I'm trying to keep the people in the back engaged as all the people in the front. You can sleep, by the way, and I'll never know, okay, because I'm not looking at you because I'm trying to keep them in the back. I think about all the difficulties that, then I look at that and I think, this is no big deal, right? This is no big deal. So difficulty is relative in some ways. This is across the world. Let me go back to Pergamum. Let me explain a little bit about what was going on in Pergamum that made it so difficult. You probably picked up on some of this as uh, Mark read the text uh, this morning. He says, there's, there's this interesting phrase here. It says, I know where you dwell. And, and let me just tell you, that's verse 13. Let me just tell you that phrase I know has been so comforting to me that he knows all things about us. And as he's talking about these different letters, he's sharing the things he knows. And what he says to the church of Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know your circumstances. I know the difficulty of it. And look how he describes it. He says, he says you, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That that's not insignificant, right? I mean, he says, I know that this is where Satan's throne is. Now, there's many possibilities of what Jesus meant by that, and, and scholarship is divided on it in some ways, but, you know, some say that this was because Pergamon was home to this massive altar to Zeus, the god of war. This structure was 120 feet by 112 feet, and it was a, sitting at a podium 18 feet high, okay? So this was this massive structure to the god of Zeus, and so someone say, man, this looked like a throne, 
And so that's why Jesus said that. Other people say, no, it's because there was a shrine to the Greek god of healing there. And this god was depicted as a snake. And apparently non-venomous snakes would roam the temple uh, to this Greek god. And people would come to worship in the temple. And they would want to lay down with these snakes. Let me tell you, I would never be part of that cult. Um, And so since Satan is usually uh, depicted as a snake, uh, this was why Pergamon was referred to where Satan's throne is. That's possible. Another possibility is the cult of emperor worship was extraordinarily strong here in Pergamon. And so simply refusing to say Caesar's Lord could result in death. So, I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities here. Probably what's best is just to throw them all together and say that this is why that Jesus was saying there's so many false gods, so many weird teachings and, and things that were against Christianity happening in Pergamum, that this is why he said this. It was intensely hostile to live in Christianity, uh, to, to live as a Christian in Pergamum. There was obviously violence there. Antipas was killed. I told you, we, didn't know, we don't know anything about it. We just know that he was killed. This faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So it was very violent there and very uh, 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 threatening towards Christian. Uh, there's a deception element when he talks about Balaam here. It says that, that there are people who hold to the teachings of Balaam. And we're going to come back to that. We're going to circle back and explain what he means by that in a few minutes here. But there was deception that were going on. So Pergamon would have been this incredibly difficult place to live in as a Christian um, because of the violence, because of the, the oppression, because of the false teaching and false philosophy and, and all that was going on. This would have been an incredibly difficult place to live in. Yet, Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. The fact that where you live is extraordinarily difficult is not lost on me, Jesus says. Okay? I know that you're there. I know that you're in a place that is more difficult than in others and it has unique challenges. But I just want you to know, I know. Okay, That's incredibly comforting to me. So that's Pergamum. I showed you some other places, picture in there. What about where we live? Okay, You know, in a lot of ways, Madison and this Madison community is a difficult place to live in as a Christian. Now, we may not have the same challenges like having to meet out in the woods, and we may not have the temple of snakes or something like that. Praise Jesus. Okay, all right. We may not have those types of challenges, but by U.S. standards, we actually have some some difficulties here that are right here in our city. Uh, A few years ago, as of Christmas time, I took some family members that were visiting from out of town, and we went down to the Capitol building because we wanted to see the big tree, right? I mean, isn't that cool? They do this massive tree down there. It's so cool. And the Capitol building, what a beautiful building, right? I mean, I have been in uh, several Capitol buildings in, in different states, and let me tell you, ours is, ours is up there. I mean, our Capitol building is better than Michigan's Capitol building. And you know, you know if I'm saying that, okay? You know, you know that you know, I'm just shooting straight here, okay? It is a beautiful building. So we go to this beautiful building, and we're walking around, and we go upstairs, and we're walking around because, you know, that tree's so big, you want to go up on the top and look around. Then they have these, like, displays around. And I saw this display up there in the Capitol building. If you can't read it, It says, behold the flying spaghetti monster. He boiled for your sins. 
Be touched by his noodly appendage before it is too late. And it's put in there by the atheist and things like this, right? Now, this is mocking, of course. And basically it says, if this sounds crazy to you, basically they're saying, yeah, so does the whole thing about Jesus. That sounds crazy. Did you know that we, Madison, we are home to the Freedom From Religion Foundation? It's based here in Madison. Freedom from religion. It's right here. And so we have uh, all of these, 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 these places that are against God in so many ways and philosophies that come up. Uh, Ron Reagan Jr., uh, who uh, is a avowed atheist, uh, he had a video on uh, their website here, this Freedom from Religion, and this is how he ended his video. He says, Ron Reagan... Lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. You know, I mean, we just live in a city that openly just mocks what we stand for here. What, what, what the scriptures are very clear about. I mean, we have some weird philosophies being pushed in our schools. This is the reason why we need to pray for our schools, right? We have... An event, and, and forgive me, I, I hope this isn't being too crass, but we have an event every year. It's ride your bike naked around the Capitol. First of all, that's bizarre, okay? But it just shows you how out of touch with, with any type of decorum or modesty or anything. It's just gone. I mean, this, this is our city, okay? The philosophies that are being pushed on everyone is completely against the scriptures and staggering if we stop and think about it. But so many times, we, we're just so used to living here, right? And we hear all these things and uh, someone's like, yeah, there's Madison. Oh, yeah, don't go downtown. It's the ride your bike around the Capitol Naked weekend. You know, don't want to go down there. Now, just think about that for a second that you have to tell someone not to do, go downtown. I love that the former pastor here, apparently, uh, uh, Craig, who was my predecessor here, he had family from out of town and wanted to show him downtown. Guess what weekend he took him downtown, all right? <laughs> Praise Jesus, I didn't make that mistake, okay? All right? But the fact that we can just lay out this as normal, think about what, I mean, if Jesus was writing this letter, he's like, I know where you dwell, okay? This is weird, but we're kind of used to it. It's a difficult place. We live in a difficult place. So sometimes I get discouraged and overwhelmed, but then I think about what Jesus said here, he says, I know where you dwell. Because when we dwell in a difficult place, we have some unique opportunities. And so let me move through this. And I got to go through this kind of quickly here. So forgive me if, I'm, if, I, if I pick up the pace here. But we need to seize the unique opportunities that come. You know, in Pergamum, it says that they held fast to his name. You see it in verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's a very difficult place. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even the days of Antipas when he was killed, he says, you have held fast. You did not lose faith in me, Jesus is saying to them. What a, what a great opportunity for them to shine brightly in a very dark place. It was you know, a light, as you've all heard the statement goes, a light shines bright in the most dark places. And so what Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamon says, you have shown us bright lights here. They were an odd voice of truth in this time. 
It was a beautiful thing. They were that city set upon a hill here that they were able to to hold fast to the word uh, and and not deny the name of Jesus Christ. And so they had that unique opportunity that even just claiming some of the basic tenets of Christianity would seem revolutionary to them and they they could shine brightly in this area. Well, it's the same for us, right? It's the same for us. I mean, we have the responsibility to be a voice of reason and truth in an era where truth is relative and personal feelings trump clear biblical teaching. I mean, personal feelings is, is, it rules the day here. And we have the opportunity to be loving, kind, winsome in how we do it, but yet we need to be that voice of truth and be that voice of reason in this dark, dark place. So that means we stand for biblical definitions of marriage and gender and sexuality. We do so in love. We do so in kindness. We do so in an accepting way. But we stand for what the Bible says in that. And if we do some of those basic things, we will shine very brightly in this community. And let me tell you, even 15, 20 years ago, the things that we have to talk about, the things that we have to define and spell out and be very clear about right now, Nobody would, 15, 20 years ago, no one would have even, they would have questioned, why are you even talking about this? So we have the opportunity, we need to seize this opportunity to lovingly, kindly, graciously, boldly stand for truth of what the Bible says here. And don't, don't, don't allow culture to move us on that. We need to stand for the sanctity of life, particularly the life of the unborn. Uh, you, know, I, you know, Texas came out with the, the law, and, and, which I think is very helpful, uh, uh, and um, uh, it's amazing to hear the arguments against that. It's amazing to hear the arguments against this. We stand, we are a lone voice, I feel like, so many times here. Let's seize that opportunity. Let's not be, be fearful. Let's not retreat. Let's not let everyone else have the conversation. Let's Let's be very kind and gentle with it, but also bold and courageous. We have to be that odd voice of truth, just like the church in Pergamum. So we should seize the opportunity to show our community a better way of living. We can show them where true joy and satisfaction come from, right? People around us are looking for joy and satisfaction in all the wrong places. As the church, we should be able to highlight and say, this is where true joy and satisfaction comes from. We we must grab our chance to show Dane County what it means to live with eternity in mind. That's a foreign concept to most of your neighbors and co-workers, this idea of living for the next life. It's only about this life. We should be, we need to grab this opportunity and say, no, 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 it's not about this life, it's about the life to come. We need to cling to the opportunity that we have to show our community what it means to live with steadfast hope and not debilitating fear or anxiety. We are living in some of the most fearful, anxious times. And the church should be the standout example in the community of what joyful, confident, bold, and hope-filled living looks like. Because we have our hope in Christ. We don't need it. And I get anxiety is a thing. I get it. And it happens to me, too. But, But we need to reorient our minds to Scripture at that point. And we can talk and we can get help. And we want to have those conversations with you. So I'm not trying to minimize that. But I'm saying we cannot live in fear and anxiety. Christ has given us Hope eternal. We just sang Christ, in Christ springs hope eternal, right? 
He is our hope. And so this is our opportunity to seize, to seize the opportunity in this dark community. And so I guess what I say, in short, this is the verse that we need to live out here in Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor and in vain. This is our calling. We seize the opportunity, right? To shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. And if, if you don't think this applies to Madison, we got to chat, okay? All right? And so instead of being discouraged, though, instead of saying, oh, boy, this is so terrible, seize the opportunity, okay? And so this is what Christ has called us. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I got to move on and round this out. There's a lot of ways that we can say that we must do this, okay? I'm not going to go into a list of like, okay, step one is this, step two is step three. What I'm going to say is here's where it starts, okay? It must start with resisting the powerful pull of culture, okay? This is what Jesus was asking the church of Pergamum to do, okay? Because, look at this, Jesus affirms the people who held fast. We've already talked about that. You hold fast my name, okay? But then he says this in verse uh, 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Verse 15. You have some who teach the teachings of Nicolaitans. And so while he affirmed those who held fast, he says that there are some who hold fast to these teachings. Now, what does this mean? What is he talking about here? This is a reference to what some events that were happening, uh, talking about Balaam and Barak. These were the events that were happening in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, okay? So Numbers 22 through 25, if you go back there, you'll read the story of what's happening, but I'll summarize it for you now. Balak was the king of Moab uh, and was greatly afraid of Israel. He saw how God was, you know, giving Israel the land. He saw how God was blessing Israel. He was against Israel. They were sworn enemies, but he saw the power of their God, and so he was afraid. Balak saw this, and so he says, how can I defeat this, this, this young country, Israel? How can I do this? They have a God who's fighting their battle. So what he did was, is he went and found a prophet for hire, Balaam. Balaam was a notorious prophet for hire, okay? We don't really understand all the nuances of that, but I'll just say that, you know, he was someone who would speak blessings and curses and things like this, but instead of serving Christ alone, he was just for hire. So Balaam goes to him and says, hey, listen, you need to put a curse on Israel because I'm going to go up against them. We're going to fight, right, okay? And I know that's going to happen with what their God is doing for them. It's not going to work for me. And so, but if you put a curse on them, you, a prophet, put a curse on them, there's a chance I'm going to win this thing. So Balaam says, okay, I'll do that. Give me the money. And so he takes the money and he goes, and he goes to begin to pronounce this curse against Israel. As he opens his mouth to speak, instead of a curse, a blessing comes out of his mouth. Where did that come from? Well, God was messing with them, okay? I love this about God. He's just messing with them. So a curse, I mean, a blessing comes up. So, so Balak says, what are you doing? You can't do that. He says, you got to do the curse. He says, let me try again. So he goes around two. He says, okay, here's my curse. Boom. And a blessing comes out again. 
what are you doing? You can't do this to me. I'm not paying you to bless them. I'm paying you to curse them. He says, let me try it again. Try it a third time. You know what happens, right? Okay, so three times he stands. He's trying to curse the people of Israel so that Moab would have a chance in the war against them, and only blessing comes out. So Balaam's not ready to give up, though. I mean, this is his bread and butter. This is how he's getting his money. So what he says is he thinks about this, and he says, well, if I can't curse them, maybe I can corrupt them. So what he does is he goes to the women in Moab, and he says, listen, go and marry the Israel guys. Go, go start families with them. And then teach your children to worship the God of the Moabites. And that's what happened. Numbers 30, or 31, I think it's 30 actually, talks about how that they listened to the device of Balaam to infiltrate, to take and change their culture through marriage and through relationships that should never have happened. And this was the downfall of Israel. It led to 24,000 people dying. Okay? This was a terrible thing. Later on, throughout the rest of the scriptures, after this, Balaam is going to become shorthand for deception. Uh, prophets are going to refer to this, okay, that Peter refers to this. Jude refers to this. Now we have this here. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, just like with Balaam, when they did the deception and they did the corruption from within, that's what's happening in your church. I love your church. The people are standing. He says, but some of you are doing this here. Some of these church members are being deceived into accepting the immoral culture that they were living in. What about us? I mean, we have culture wars. And, and let me tell you, if you don't think, I'm going to say this with all love, okay? If you don't think that you are affected by culture, you're very naive. I say that, I say that with love. I am much more affected by my culture than I care to admit and probably even recognize. And so we just need, and, and that's not always bad, right? Okay, I'm not saying everything about culture is bad, but we just need to be very, very, very careful. I wonder if Jesus said, hey, listen, I, Memorial, <laughs> some of you are holding fast. That's awesome. But some of you, some of you, you're, you're being deceived by culture. Well, let, I, you know, so how is what has a powerful pull on our church? You know, there, there could be, I could give you several things here. I'm just going to give you three examples, okay? This is not an exhaustive list. These were just things I thought of, okay, what would I say would be have a, the philosophy of this world that would be really powerful pull on our culture that's hindering our mission and our living for God? The first one I would say is live and let live, okay? Live and let live. You do your thing, I do my thing. Okay. Now, I will say this. This is going away in our world. Okay. It's much more about do what I want you to do. Okay. But in the church, as I talk with other pastors and my pastoral experiences, this is, this is, this is in the church. Okay. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. And we're good. Okay. So if you want to do that, fine. But just don't tell me what to do. Right. You don't have uh, the right to tell me what to do here. Um, and, and let me tell you, uh, there's, 
Every era of pastoring has its unique set of challenges, okay? I read church history, and I see some of the issues that some of the pastors went on before me to dealt with. I'm like, I don't have to deal with this at all. Or, you know, sometimes I'm glad that I didn't have to deal with it, you know, whatever. You know, I, I, I read the church records, you know, of our church. Our church has been around since 1855, and so we've gone through different eras of things here. You know, they used to publish what people gave and stuff like that. You know, we don't do that anymore, or... You know, there was, uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure this out. One lady had to pay a fee uh, uh, in the early 1900s because she brought the wrong pie to a church event or something. I'm not sure what the story is behind that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm just like, if the pie is good, who cares? But, you know, I don't have to deal with those type of issues and stuff like that. But they had to deal with things that I didn't have to deal with and stuff. Let me tell you a challenge that is very true in today's church. Not just our church, but across the world, uh, across our country. I gave this illustration to several pastors a while ago. I said, hey, I'm working on this illustration. Let me, uh, let me see if this is true in your church, okay? And every one of them, and we're talking about this is a representation from people in all regions of our country, okay? Okay. And they said, absolutely true. So here's the thing. I, I have told you before that one of the ways that I see myself as a pastor and the way as elders we see ourselves as spiritual leaders is we're like player coaches, okay? And so what that means is everything that we're preaching here, we got to do, okay? I don't have the, I don't just sit here and preach to you and say, you guys go do this, and then I don't do anything. When I say read your Bible, I should be reading my Bible, right? If I say go tell people about Christ, I should be telling people about Christ. So in that sense, I'm, I'm a player. But I'm also a coach, and the elder team, we're coaches, we're spiritual coaches, and we, we kind of we get in there and we say, okay, no, we're not going to run that play. No, we're not going to do this. Okay, no, we're going to substitute this person over here. We're going to do this, and we're going to run this offense, and we're going to be doing this. And, and we're making those decisions, right? And we're, we're trying to coach the team, right? So there's this, there's this weird dual role that we have as player coaches. So we get the team together and we say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. And we kind of mess up with what we're doing. Okay. Now I know that you really like this play, but we're not going to run this play. We're going to run this play, whatever the case may be. Then we break the huddle. And what do we do? We go out and play the game together. Okay. That's how I see us as in how our elder team sees. Well, there's a difference though that has shifted in a lot of way, a lot of church understanding how play, pastors should pastor. Instead of being player coaches, they are expected to be player cheerleaders. I played basketball in high school, okay? And it was a small Christian school league, and so, you know, it wasn't big or anything, but man, we played, and we played our hearts out. And I remember some games we won, it was awesome, but I remember this one particular game. We were playing, and we were down by like only 30, okay, all right. So we're down by like 30 points. And I mean, and there was plenty of time left. It was 10 seconds to go in the fourth quarter, okay? So we had plenty of time, right, okay? So I'm looking at the clock. I'm looking at the score. I'm feeling pretty bad about, you know, the team. I'm feeling pretty bad that we're going to lose so bad and everything. And I remember waiting to get the ball inbounded to me, okay? So I'm waiting for the guy to throw the ball to me so I can dribble up the court. And, you know, there's only 10 seconds left or whatever it is. And right here, right, I mean, we're talking super close to me. There is our school cheerleaders. What do you think they're doing? They are leading the, uh, the, the, the crowd into a cheer, and this is the cheer. We're number one. We are awesome. 
I'm like, no, we're not, <laughs> okay? We're not awesome. We're not, we're down by 30 points here. We're not number one here, okay? You know, but we're number one. We're number one, okay? You know, and I was just like, oh, no, we are not, you know? It's like, but you know, it's, 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 it's funny because I think there's been a shift. Instead of being a player coach that so we can get kind of in and say, hey, no, 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 that's not good. It's we, the expectation is for us to cheer everybody on and even if we're down by 30, if, if, if we say we're down by 30, it's like, yeah, 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 don't point that out. And again, that's not everybody, but it's a culture shift in churches here. Where our elder team, we say we need to be player coaches. We got to be able to say, no, 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 no. When we try to do it with love, we try to do it with compassion, and we mess up and we make mistakes, and we are the first people to admit that, but we cannot be relegated to just being a cheerleader all the time and affirming everyone and everyone's decision. We will forfeit the calling of God on us if we don't say in love, hey, no, 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 you're down by 30 here, and there's only 10 seconds left to go. You need to change this. Do you see what I'm saying? That makes sense? I hope it does. And so I, I shared that analogy with a few other pastors across the country, and they said that perfectly summed up their experience. And, you know, many people in the church, they're okay with general teaching, but when it comes to personal conversations that apply the same teaching, people generally resist and get offended. And that's been my experience in most churches that I've been a part of. And so my point is, is not to say, woe is us, or this church is bad, or anything like that, or complain of how difficult we have it. That's not my point. My point is, though, if we are going to resist the powerful pull of culture, one of those things is we got to resist this idea of live and let live. We gotta invite as Christians. We gotta be. We gotta accept criticism and 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 uh, 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 allow people to to point out areas of blind spots uh, in in our lives. So that's one thing. I need to move on. I, I really need to move quickly here. The next one, and this is called moralistic therapeutic deism. There's a there's a big word for you there. This comes from a book called Soul Searching that was written uh, several years ago, and it is about, um, about teenagers and how they view the world. I'm just going to just, just mention this. And in that sermon resources on Church Center, I've linked two articles uh, that talk about this here that are very helpful. Short articles, not very long, but it's really helpful, but it's very, very true. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What is that? Well, it's basically five tenets that after lots of research with teenagers and things like this, these, these researchers came up with, these were the general ideas. I put them in the handout for you as well. Um, and it's this. Number one, this is the, the first tenet. God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, okay? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, okay? Again, these are things that, that the next generation in, in, at the age of the book says really this generation just generally believed about God and how he interacted, okay? Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Those are the five kind of main tenets of what these authors said, what they determined moralistic therapeutic deism. Why, does he, why do they use those words? Well, it's moralistic because the high value that most people in their view of God, there's a high value on just being good and being good people. So that's number two and number five, okay? God wants people to be good, okay? Yes, God wants people to be good. But it's not just 
behavior modification. It's heart change that God's after. Therapeutic, they use that word because of the primary value of feeling good about oneself. That's three and four. The central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Um, and God isn't really involved unless uh, you got a problem, and then he'll come in and, and make it so that then you can feel good about that, okay? And then the last word, deism, there, that's this idea of that God starts things, and then he kind of lets it go, okay? It's a view of God and how he relates to, to man, that God is relatively uninvolved with creation. That's number one and number four. Now, I'll say this, and I just put this out there just kind of to start your thinking, this is how a lot of people approach God and how they view God in a relationship with him. We've got to resist this pull that God is relatively uninterested in us and that he's only there when we need him for a big problem, okay? He wants to be involved with every decision in every part of our lives. We need to resist the powerful pull of culture that says, listen, you know, you just got to feel good about yourself all the time. Well, no. It, sometimes when, we're, when we get blind spots pointed out to us and we see that we've sinned, and there's a call to repentance here in this text and in the, what we've been studying here, that doesn't come with feeling good about yourself. That sense of, man, I've messed up. Now, I'm not saying that God says he wants us to go and just have terrible views and, and you know, that we just beat each, ourselves and stuff. But we have to get to the point where we say, this is wrong, and, but I, I, I can't do this anymore. Oh, that doesn't feel good. It never feels good in that moment. But it's best for us and best for uh, uh, bringing glory to God. So these are things I just want to point it out. I'm looking at the clock, and so I need to move on. But these are the things that are, uh, is a powerful pull. Put it in your hopper. Think about it. Maybe in small group, talk about that. Do you see this moralistic deism, and how should we resist that? There's one last thing, and I just have to mention this, and I'm just going to hit it and move on, is... Resisting a powerful pull of culture means that there's, we got to resist accepting perpetual distraction as normal. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say with this is we run from one thing to the next. Our schedules typically are full of the wrong things. We're exhausted. We are distracted from what we should be focused on, on mission, and what God has asked us to. We don't think about God much throughout the week uh, and stuff typically. And, and let me just say we cannot live in that perpetual state of distraction and, and I don't mean to be, you know, I'm not that old, but I feel like a, you know, this old codger up here saying, technology, you know, you know, stay away from technology. No, but it is dangerous, right? I mean, we, we are enslaved to technology, and it, it distracts us. These notifications and this, the, the instant, you're constantly scrolling through stuff. And, and I mean, if I were to, I'm not going to do this. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, not going to do this, don't raise your hand. But if I were going to say, how many of you have ever caught yourself scrolling through Twitter, Facebook, or something else, and then you realize, I, what am I doing? I, I don't even, how long have I been doing this? I don't even know what I'm doing, Right. I guarantee almost every hand would be up here, right, okay? Because we, we're all this, we're just distracted by the wrong stuff all the time. And that, I'm telling you, this, this constant distraction, I believe, is a huge source, and I'm not alone in this, of stress and anxiety in our lives. You, 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 you Google, here's a homework assignment, I don't have any for you, but here's a homework assignment, Google Technology, stress, and anxiety, okay? All right? You will have fascinating reading, I uh, guarantee you. Uh, and then I do understand 
the paradox of me telling you to Google the dangers of technology. I get it. That's not lost on me. All right. What are some of the things that come with perpetual distractions, sleep dysregulation? There's a lack of a work-life balance because of technology. I mean, particularly with the pandemic, I mean, there is no distinction with that anymore. That constant fear of missing out, social comparison, all of these things lead to great stress and anxiety. And I'm telling you, this is just, if we just accept it as norm that we should just be enslaved to our devices, let's push against that, okay? So... Uh, one book that I would recommend, highly recommend, it's also listed in uh, sermon uh, resources on our church app, is 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Highly, 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 highly recommend that book. 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. I got to point this out as I bring this to a close, that some was enough for Jesus to write a letter in the church commanding them to repent. Okay? Don't miss that point. Some of you do this was enough for Jesus to say, you got to repent. God's not about percentages here. It's not like, well, you know, you guys got 80% doing it right, 20%, that's good enough. You got to be moving on, okay? No, he says, some of you. And so while every sermon is not always equally applicable to all, I would think that there are elements to this that are applicable to each of us. And so we must take this reality seriously. It'd be incredibly naive to think that there are not some here in our church that would be uh, that, that would be applying here that this would be applicable to. I'm asking all of us to make sure we prioritize Jesus' solution to Pergamum's problem here, and that we must resist the powerful pull of culture. So, what is Jesus' solution? You see that at the end of your handout there. Uh, repent. He says, "Repent." Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Are we quick to repent? Are we more committed to, or are we more committed to making excuses and justifying ourselves than we are to repenting? Jesus says, just repent. That means to turn, to change, to accept, okay, this was wrong, I'm sorry, forgive me, and move forward. Then he also says, conquer, the one who conquers. You know, this is, 1 John 5 talks about this through faith that we conquer. So Jesus' solution is to repent and then to conquer through faith. That's the solution here. So we repent of where we've let culture pull us in the wrong direction, and we conquer through faith as we seize the opportunities to live faithfully in a difficult place. Jesus has some promises here that I'll just mention to you. I mentioned earlier, hidden manna. This could be a reference to the messianic meal that we look forward to in eternity. Don't know. Could be white. He says this white stone with a new name. Could be a sign of acquittal. They use stones for signs, you know, for voting and guilty and acquittal. White meant acquittal. Could also mean entrance into eternal life. There's some thoughts on this. Scholarship is incredibly divided on this, let me tell you. And I'm uncertain about the nuanced meaning here, but I will say that I know that it is referring to at least a personal, eternal blessing that will be enjoyed with Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's a personal, eternal blessing that will be enjoyed with Jesus. So Christians living in difficult places must seize their unique opportunities to be faithful witnesses while resisting the powerful pull of culture. 